as we follow Jesus, Jesus, the icon of God, Jesus, the splendor of God's glory, the brightness of the shining of God, as we give ourselves to Jesus, it defies our instincts of what God is like and our expectations of how God would be toward us. That when we are at our worst, God is kindest to us. Hello, friends, and welcome, or welcome back. Thanks so much for listening. This past weekend was the Shaman International Christian Fellowship North American Reunion. We had a great group of folks, about 50 folks came who had been part of Shaman International Christian Fellowship at one time or another, and everybody gathered together here in North Texas, and we had a fantastic time together. And during our time together, I had the honor on Friday night of sharing a little devotional, but because of time constraints, I didn't really get to share as clearly or as fully as I would have liked, and so I felt like I didn't make the best use of the time, but I'm hoping here in this podcast I can lay out what I was hoping to communicate with a little greater clarity and a little more fullness and a little more detail, and so perhaps those people who were there uh, this past weekend can listen and be um, blessed, and for anyone who wasn't there, hopefully this will also be a blessing to you. But leading up to the retreat, I had this lyric in my head that was playing over and over that all of our debts have been paid. That Jesus Christ, when he died on the cross, he paid our debt of sin in full. He paid it in full that the wages of sin is death and Christ took those wages in his body and he became the propitiation to make us right with God. So God poured out everything that he was wrathful toward on Christ, and we now get the blessing of being counted righteous because Christ took our sin. And that is such a beautiful thing. Our hearts should just blossom before the Lord. Our hearts should just open wide to him and all of his kindness, his immeasurable generosity, his graciousness, his compassion, his love, his glorious goodness toward us is without measure. It is amazing. And yet there's still uh, some instincts that we have inherited from Adam where we still fear God and we still misunderstand the intentions of God toward us. And so our instincts about God in our flesh are not to be trusted. You know, in our flesh, we know, uh, instinctively, we know that God is real and that we have offended him and we should be afraid of him. And Adam's first instinct after he ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil was to run and to hide from God. And in Western culture, we have this idea that certain truths are self-evident, but that's not true. Uh, Truth is not self-evident. If it were, everyone would just worship Jesus Christ as Lord. Truth must be revealed. And so Christ came to this earth and he revealed truth to us. And we have the great blessing of living in a culture that has been influenced by centuries of Judeo-Christian values and Judeo-Christian influence. And so we might be tempted to think that these truths are self-evident, that people are inherently valuable, that uh, all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain 
unalienable rights, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, we, we might be tempted to think that those truths are self-evident, but really they're not. Really, we arrived at those truths through the revelation that came to us through Christ, through the scriptures, and through centuries of men and women of God seeking Christ and seeking to know his heart. And so our instincts about God uh, in our flesh are not to be trusted. We there, There's something in us that is afraid of God and is uh, wants to run from God and be fearful, just like when uh, Christ caused the miraculous catch of fish and Peter said to him, depart from me, Lord, I am a sinful man. Um, though that's our instinct, and it, it's it's got an element of truth to it because God does exist, and we have offended Him, and, and we should be fearful of Him in the sense that we are deserving of His wrath. However, in Christ, we see the kindness of God revealed to us that when we are at our worst, God is kindest to us. That when we are at our lowest point is when Christ comes to us and lifts us up and brings us forgiveness and mercy in our place of greatest brokenness, of greatest wickedness, of greatest rebellion against God, in that place of shame where we have offended God and we're God's enemies, he comes to us, he serves us, he dies for us. And so uh, it's really important that we lean into the revelation of God brought to us by Jesus Christ, and we don't lean into our our own instincts about God. A.W. Tozer said, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. So, uh, Miroslav Volv, in his book, God the Giver, he talked about our images of God, that we the, the way that we perceive God, the way that we think God is, versus the reality of who God is. And in his book, he retells the story from Gustave Flaubert's A Simple Heart. And he writes this, he says, A capable, good-hearted, and devout servant by the name of Felicite fell prey to the confusion between God and God's images. She was alone and unappreciated, and her parrot Lulu became almost like a son, a lover to her, so much so that when he died, she had him stuffed. Soon the gospel's image of the Holy Spirit as a dove began to merge with her stuffed parrot, and she fell into the idolatrous habit of saying her prayers on her knees in front of the parrot. Finally, Flaubert wrote, As she breathed her last, she thought she saw, as the heavens opened, a gigantic parrot hovering over her head. Abandoned by others, she transferred her love to the parrot, transforming it into a god. An earthly image morphed into a divine reality. In Miroslav Volv's point is that we can have an inaccurate perception of God. Indeed, none of us has a perfect revelation of who God is. And so it's so critical that as best we can, we seek to know God as he is revealed through Jesus Christ. Volv goes on in his book and warns us that slowly and imperceptibly, the one true God begins to acquire the features of the gods of this world. For instance, our God simply gratifies our desires rather than reshaping them in accordance with the beauty of God's own character. 
Our God then kills enemies rather than dying on their behalf as God did in Jesus Christ. To use Flaubert's metaphor, the dove of the spirit becomes the parrot whose plumage bears a striking resemblance to our culture's values. To worship God rather than idols of our own making, we must allow God to break apart the idols we create through the Spirit's relentless and intimate work within our lives. Let me read that last part again. To worship God rather than idols of our own making, we must allow God to break apart the idols we create through the Spirit's relentless and intimate work within our lives. The place to see God revealed in truth is in His Son, Jesus Christ. In Colossians 1.15, Jesus is called the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. That is, He is the icon of God. He, he is what God looks like. Jesus told his, uh, his disciples, if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. Hebrews 1.3 says that He's the radiance of the glory of God and the exact image imprint of his nature. In John 14, 6, Jesus said that I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. So Jesus is the way to the Father. If we want to know the Father, if we want to know what the Father is like, we begin with Jesus. And that is one of the first things that we begin to encounter as we encounter Jesus Christ, is that Jesus reveals to us a Father. Let me read to you something from Michael Reeves, Delighting in the Trinity, and this is one of the best books I've read in the last 20 years. Just a fantastic book, stirring up my affection and my love and my desire to worship God. But in his book, he has a little section that talks about two theologians from the 4th century, uh, Arius and Athanasius. And he talks about uh, Arius began teaching that the Son of God was a created being, not truly God. He did so because he believed that God is the origin and cause of everything, but is not caused to exist by anything else. Thus, uncaused or unoriginate, he therefore held, was the best basic definition of what God is like. But since the Son, being a Son, must have received his being from the Father, he could not, by Arius' definition, be God. This argument persuaded many. But it did not persuade Arius's brilliant young contemporary, Athanasius. Believing that Arius had started in the wrong place with his basic definition of God, Athanasius dedicated the rest of his life to proving how catastrophic Arius's thinking was for healthy Christian living. Athanasius simply boggled at Arius's presumption. How could he possibly know what God is like other than as he has revealed himself? It is, he said, more pious and more accurate to signify God from the Son and call him Father than to name him from his works only and call him unoriginate. That is to say, the right way to think about God is to start with Jesus Christ, the Son of God, and not some abstract definition we have made up like uncaused or unoriginate. In fact, we should not even set out in our understanding of God by thinking of God primarily as Creator naming him, quote, from his works only. That, as we have seen, would make him dependent on his creation. Our definition of God must be built on the Son who reveals him. And when we do that, starting with the Son, we find that the first thing to say about God, as it says in the Creed, we believe in one God, 
the Father. That different starting point and basic understanding of God would mean that the gospel Athanasius preached simply felt and tasted very different from the one preached by Arius. Arius would have to pray to unoriginate, but would unoriginate listen? Athanasius could pray, Our Father. With the unoriginate, we are left scrambling for a dictionary and a philosophy lecture. With a father, things are familial. And if God is a father, then he must be relational and life-giving. And that is the sort of God we could love. So, in this brilliant book, uh, Michael Reeves, Delighting in the Trinity, he lays out that the most foundational thing in God is not some abstract quality, that he's the, the prime mover, he's the uncreated, but something very relational, that he is a father. And this is the God that Jesus reveals. That God is not essentially a maker in need of a creation. If God's essence was creator, then he would need a creation to be himself. But God is essentially a fountain of love between a Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in need of nothing to be himself. He is love. He is good. And the, the, the beauty of the triune God is that the Son is the eternal Son and the Spirit is the eternal Spirit. And God has always existed in community. He doesn't need a creation to demonstrate his goodness. He's been demonstrating his goodness in the community of the Trinity for all of eternity past. So if we think about this, this means that God does not create because he needs to. He creates because he wants to. God is not ultimately a taker, getting his identity or, or getting his, his worship or his praise or, or something that he needs to receive from the creation, creating so that the creation might serve him. He's ultimately a giver. He's not looking to receive anything from his creation. He's not sucking life from his creation. He's pouring life into his creation. He's not taking his identity from creation. He creates simply to share the overflow of his goodness. If God is first and primarily creator, then his being and identity depend on creation. But if God is first and primarily father, then his being and identity depend on his relationship to the Son, going back from all of eternity. Quoting Michael Reeves again, he writes, Since God is before all things a father and not primarily creator or ruler, all his ways are beautifully fatherly. It is not that God does being father as a day job only to kick back in the evenings as plain old God. It is not that he has a nice blob of fatherly icing on top. He is father all the way down. Thus, all that he does, he does as father. That is who he is. He creates his father and he rules his father. And that means the way he rules over creation is most unlike the way any other God would rule over creation. Again, in this book, Delighting in the Trinity, uh, Reeves tells the story of Richard Sibbs. Sibbs, he writes, a rough contemporary of Shakespeare was a Puritan preacher and theologian who spoke so winningly of the kindness and love of God that he came to be known as the honey-mouthed preacher. Yet it was not simply that Sibbs was born with a sunny disposition. He himself was adamant that it is our view of God that shapes us most deeply. We become like what we worship. And Sibbs clearly saw the triune God as winning, kind, and lovely. He spoke of the living God as a life-giving, warming sun who delights to spread his beams 
and his influence in inferior things to make all things fruitful. Such a goodness is in God as in a fountain or in the breast that loves to ease itself of milk. That is, God is simply bursting with warm and life-imparting nourishment, far more willing to give than we are to receive. And that, he explained, is precisely why he created the world. If God had not a communicative spreading goodness, he would have never created the world. The Father, Son, and Holy Ghost were happy in themselves and enjoyed one another before the world was. Apart from the fact that God delights to communicate and spread His goodness, there would have never been a creation or redemption. It is not then that God needed to create the world in order to satisfy Himself or to be Himself. The divine majesty of this God is not dependent on the world. The Father, Son, and Spirit were happy in themselves and enjoyed one another before the world. But the Father so enjoyed His fellowship with the Son that He wanted to have the goodness of it spread out and communicated or shared with others. The creation was a free choice born out of nothing but love. It was the knowledge that God is so sunny, so radiant with goodness and love that made Sibs such an attractive model of God-likeness. For He said, quote, Those that are led with the Spirit of God, that are like Him, They have a communicative, diffusive goodness that loves to spread itself. In other words, knowing God's love, he became loving. And his understanding of who God is transformed him into a man, a preacher and a writer of magnetic geniality. That amiability is shown through his preaching. It still glows from his writings. And looking at his life, it is clear that he had quite an extraordinary ability for cultivating warm and lasting friendships. He had become like his God. So as we follow Jesus, Jesus, the icon of God, Jesus, the splendor of God's glory, the brightness of the shining of God, as we give ourselves to Jesus, it defies our instincts of what God is like and our expectations of how God would be toward us. And so to quote Reeves again, he says, perhaps then it is not so much the seemingly bad math of the Trinity that puts us off as it is the sheer imposition of an unexpected sort of God. And so this is what uh, Volve was talking about. Our expectations and our images of what we think God is like, those instincts that we've inherited from Adam, those ideas perhaps that have been communicated to us through uh, religious people or through our parents or through ever, any other source that would try to inform us about what is God like versus what does Jesus reveal to us? Who is the God that Jesus reveals to us? And if we choose to believe that Jesus is who he says he is, then we find ourselves with the same conundrum that his first followers had. These first followers of Christ who were devout monotheists worshipped Jesus as God. And so this immediately begins us down a path of understanding God as a trinity, understanding the three persons of God, and yet the oneness of Yahweh. In fact, this uh, the writing of Yahweh in the Old Testament, in our Old Testament, where we see the Lord, L-O-R-D, written in the all small capital letters, is the divine name, the sacred name that the Hebrews would not even pronounce, and they would just write the Hebrew letters, the yad without the vowels, and the name of God was not, was not spoken. They used that same form 
when they wrote the divine name of Jesus in the New Testament, the nomen sacrum, the sacred name of Jesus in the New Testament, they would also write it without any vows, showing that they were honoring Christ the same way that they honored Yahweh in his name in the Old Testament. John Calvin wrote that if we try to think about God without thinking about the Father, Son, and Spirit, then only the bare and empty name of God flits about in our brains to the exclusion of the true God. And so we find ourselves with the revelation through Christ of the triune God that Jesus existed before all things, and so all things were created by him. Now, if all things were created by him, that means that he himself was not created, and he is the radiance of God's glory, that there was never a time when God was not radiantly glorious, and there was never a time when God was not a father, and so there was never a time when there was not the Son. And so if we choose to worship Jesus, as was the natural response of all who followed him from the first century until now, we choose to worship him and we choose to honor him as God in the flesh. And so the the Trinity is the mystery of God made known to us through Christ. And we, we dive into the Trinity, we dive into the revelation of who God is as revealed to us in Christ. And this is what makes the Christian God so unique. This is what makes the Christian God different than non-Christian expressions of faith. That uh, Mormons can believe in a resurrection. Jehovah's Witness can believe in the sacrificial death of Jesus. Muslims can believe in a creator, creator God. But what makes Christianity so distinct is the identity of our God. And the God that we serve, the true God revealed in Christ, does not fit in the mold of any other quote-unquote God. And maybe this is why it's so hard for us to understand. This is why it's not self-evident. This is why we need the Holy Spirit to reveal Jesus to us. We need Jesus to reveal the Father to us. We need the Holy Spirit to bring to mind the things that Christ taught. We need the Holy Spirit to take what belongs to Christ and make it known to us. We need the grace of God to reveal these mysteries to us, to make these things known to us. Because we're used to fashioning God according to our assumptions of this is what we think God is like. These are the instincts that I've inherited from Adam, the uh, kind of the pantheon of gods that uh, different cultures have created throughout the ages where God is out to use humanity for his own purposes. But this is not the God that Jesus reveals to us. Quoting Michael Reeves once more, he writes, The irony could not be thicker. What we assume would be a dull or peculiar irrelevance turns out to be the source of all that is good in Christianity. Neither a problem nor a technicality, the triune being of God is the vital oxygen of Christian life and joy. And so Jesus reveals to us this amazing Father who before the creation of the world for all eternity past has been loving and giving life to the Son. In John 17, 24, Jesus is praying and he says, Father, you love me before the foundation of the world. And the amazing thing is that we are now invited into this life, into this relationship of the Trinity. And Jesus prays, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us. And so Christ reveals to us and not only reveals to us the wonder and the goodness of God, but 
literally draws us in to participate in his goodness, to share in his goodness, to partake of the life that he wants to give us. The the gods invented by men demand life from their worshipers. This God revealed by Jesus Christ gives life literally as he pours his life out, as he offers us his flesh as true food and his blood as true drink. He says, here, take my life into you and receive true life. And as we partake of the blood and the life of Christ, we allow him to come into us and to make us new and to transform us and to give us a new life. We get a new born again spirit and then we begin on this journey of being transformed from one degree of glory to another that we might be transformed and become more and more like Christ and grow up into mature sons like Jesus Christ. So returning to our original question, how much does the Father love Jesus? Well, everything good in life that we see is an overflow of this Father's love. The creation, the redemption, the consummation of the creation that is coming, it is all an overflow of the love that God the Father has for the Son. And He created the visible world to glorify His Son, that everything in creation would be united with everything in the heavens through Jesus Christ, that he would be the center of it all, that God's goodness might be spread far and wide, filling the whole creation. Praise be to God. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways for who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor or who has given to him a gift that he might be repaid for from him and through him and to him are all things to him be glory forever amen thank you so much for listening God bless you